The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. We are back in London and I'm joined in the studio today by a regular Echo Chamber guest, Alan van der Molen from We Communications. Alan, how's it going? Terrific. Very happy. It's good to hear. Um, you've been in the news a little bit today. Uh, well, no, yesterday, I think. Yesterday. Um, with your launch of a, of a new independent agency network. Uh, and in particular, you had a video accompanying the announcement, which and I'm sure you had nothing to do with this, uh, which took some shots at the holding group model. Um, Holding companies don't work for you, said the video. Uh, they work for their shareholders. So I, I'm aware that holding companies are an easy target. They are, they are big and somewhat faceless uh, juggernauts. Um, but why, why did you feel the need to criticize them while, while launching uh, this new network of independent agencies, of which, of course, We Communications is one? We, we are indeed one, and, and the holding companies are... Uh are easy targets, and, and they're easy targets because they put themselves in that position. I think what we're seeing today is a homogenization of offers, of the offers across disciplines and within disciplines. So if you want me to give you an example, what Ogilvy has done with Ogilvy PR, Ogilvy One, and all the Ogilvy discipline assets, lumping them together into one brand and therefore bringing a high degree of homogeneity to that offer. So in my view, discounting the value of the specialists within that network, which is a great strong brand that I have a lot of respect for and a great legacy brand. However, I think that's being homogenized to answer the needs of shareholders to squeeze out greater profits from an individual brand versus really keeping the client at the center of the, of the proposition. Mm. I think another example of that, if we want to look at it, is my favorite holding company, Publicis, oh. and what they've done with the MSNL brand, mm. which has subjugated it to the Publicis master brand, and by therefore, in my view, discounting the value of the individual disciplines and, and really discounting the value of public relations and communications within that group. Mm. So just to play um, devil's advocate here, because I don't necessarily disagree with your analysis, um, MSL group, Publicis, Ogilvy will say, we're just responding to what clients want. They don't want necessarily to buy all these different services from different agencies and to have eight different types of Ogilvy brands um, often competing with each other. What they want is, to use that awful phrase, a one-stop shop, and we can provide it. Uh, well, Ogilvy should discuss that with Martin Sorrell because Martin Sorrell's famous for saying he wants his brands to kiss and punch. Mm -hmm. So I'll call bullshit on that to start with from Ogilvy. But I think more importantly, what clients want is they don't mind where they purchase from. They want ease of purchasing and they want great creative that's going to drive their brands. So the mm -hmm. opportunity that we as an independent saw in building a network with other specialist independents on a global basis is to be able to have any independent agency within that group of agencies within the plus network lead a client engagement. Right. 
and either lead that contractually or lead the work and parcel out the work accordingly with an independent attitude, with speed and with agility, without having to pay attention or be at risk of cookie cutter creative, which is repurposing of creative across a number of clients, without the risk of the um, CFO making the decisions and how to structure the account team. Mm -hmm. That's what we're answering to there. So I I would love to engage in that debate. You don't have a an advertising agency as part of this network. Now, do you feel that puts you perhaps in a different position compared to, say, a an Ogilvy that can answer that need as well as the needs in terms of digital marketing and, and public relations? I mean, do you feel there's a, there is a demand for services that span everything? I think that there is... Um lesser demand today for advertising and creative on a global level, Mm. traditional advertising creative on a global level. However, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw an announcement of a creative agency, so-called creative agency, joining the ranks of the Plus Network in the not-too-distant future. Right. Okay. Got it. Um, It's an interesting question because, you know, these, these agencies, whether it's Ogilvy PR or no longer Ogilvy PR, just Ogilvy, uh, or MSL Group, which I think in- increasingly goes by the sort of publicist comms moniker. They have they have clearly made the decision that they would rather be part of a bigger unit um, that includes various other services. What do you think this does to the quality of public relations services that they're offering? Well, f- first of all, I bet you if you did a survey of senior executives of NMSNL, they would not tell you they want to be part of a bigger entity mm-hmm. that is underneath a clear advertising agency. I think they would tell you something quite different, mm-hmm. right? I, th- I think the point is here that the uh, by doing this, what I call with the homogeneity movement, I think that we are decreasing the addressable market for public relations as a discipline. Right. And I think that's a real mistake, and I think that's going to backfire on the holding companies that are that are doing this. Not all not all holding companies are doing this, by the way. Um, I think IPG has brilliant PR assets. Those PR assets are growing, and those mm. PR assets, as a percentage of the whole, are higher than the other holding companies. Mm. And if you talk, I mean, it's interesting because if you talk to people at Weber Shandwick and Golan, in response to some of these developments we're discussing, they will say, "We don't want to be part of someone else's game. We want to be the whole game." Uh, and, you know, I, I suspect that's a view you'd get at your former agency as well, Edelman. But how realistic is that kind of goal of, of a public relations agency leading everything and being able to sort of, I guess, orchestrate everything that a client requires? Look, I think it depends on the strength of the client leadership and the strength of the agency leadership, the ability of that leadership to have business discussions with the marketing side of the house and the communication side of the house, and then being able to bring together again, specialist resources to address specific brand and client needs. Mm. So, you know, I think um, IPG is well positioned to do that. I think Omnicom is well positioned to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting to watch what's happening um, with the PR brands in both of those places going slightly different directions, but I think stepping up for the industry and uh, being champions for for our discipline. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the brands in a second. I'm interested in your view on what clients really want because one of the things that that um, I thought when I was reporting the Ogilvy story was that 
This only really works for a very small subset of clients. Maybe let's say the top 50 or top 100 Ogilvy clients. Beyond that, there's a whole universe of clients that don't want necessarily everything together. They might be buying one thing or they might be buying another thing. Or they, might be, they might be buying two things. So how do you feel about that phenomenon? Look, look I, I don't want to make a gross generalization. However, mm. what you tend to see is the brands that are being pushed by procurement that are large purchasers of marketing services from one brand, and I mean tens of millions of dollars tied up with one brand or within one holding company, they do want that one-stop shop because mm -hmm. it's a financial play for them. Yep. Now, if the disciplines are well-managed and they're delivering a great product, that's a terrific benefit, but, but I, ch I challenge that notion. Right. Mm. I, I think that large purchasers are I think by and large purchasers of marketing services now at the midsize, mid tier brands are looking for specialist networks and specialist capabilities that are true to their specialty. They want them to be able to work across disciplines, certainly, but I think they want them to stay best in class. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, the homogeneity driven by um, aforementioned. Um, holding companies is, is destroying the quality of the individual disciplines. Hmm. Okay. So coming back to the the, the question of brands, we're, we're also seeing a considerable amount of consolidation, um, whether that's from some of the Omnicom group agencies uh, merging in certain markets or, or as described, you know, Ogilvy brands coming together. I mean, do you think that's a phenomenon that will help independent agencies, or do you think it's uh, just a natural response in terms of what clients want? Well, look, first of all, I think the, the merging of certain single discipline brands is a financial need mm -hmm. within holding companies because there's only a certain amount of business in individual national markets, and sometimes disciplines do need to combine, mm. similar to what Omnicom's done. The commercial rationale for that decision is perfectly understandable. Right. You don't need... I get it, and yeah. I think it benefits clients, and I also think it, it benefits the employees in the disciplines in those markets. Totally get that, and, and I'm, on board, I'm, I'm on board with that. Mm -hmm. I, I think the question for the purchaser of marketing services is what continues to drive best of breed for their agencies. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that independents have an, have an ability within the public relations segment as well as within other segments of marketing services to continuously invest in innovation with a lower expectation for return on investment to continue to invest in people with a lower expectation for return on investment, to, to, con to, to continue to invest in intellectual capital with a lower expectation on return on investment, and indeed to continue to invest in clients and client work with a lower expectation for return on investment. Mm. So the agility to make investment decisions you see is still being a, a, an advantage for independent agencies. Uh, there, there, look, there, there's no question in my mind, agility, speed, client centricity, and the ability to invest in people, mm -hmm. big, big benefits of independence. So if holding companies, if their model is focused on shareholders and not necessarily on clients, why is it that so many big clients want to work with them? Because large, large, cl large clients in large brands that have global remits 
that are multifaceted, see and ease of shopping in the holding companies. And they also, as Martin Sorrell moaned about in his um, results earnings from last quarters, they also are willing to cut very large discounts for large brands. And that's where the relationship between procurement and the marketers comes into play. That was a little ironic, didn't you think? Well, look, I, I certainly would like to track um, the consistency of statements coming out of um, WPP about quarterly earnings um, with uh, current actions. Mm. Well, you can. I mean, they're all on record. I'll, I'll let you and Paul do that. Yeah. <laughs> One day. Um, okay, so you have this independent agency network, and this is something Paul and I have discussed in the past. In fact, we did a whole podcast on on independent agency networks, the likes of, of, of PROI or WorldCom or whoever. And we came to the conclusion that they they raised some questions because it's hard to imagine a big client, so we saw Nissan recently or, or a, a GSK or whoever, getting out of bed and saying, I need to hire Plus Network. If that's the case, then what is the advantage of having a network like this? Well, I guess I would argue with that. I think hmm. that marketers are willing to today, marketers and communicators willing to take a look at an independent alternative that can sell them on the ability to execute across disciplines and can sell them on the ability to manage a complex remit or a complex brief from a client. So I do, I do believe the market is out there or we wouldn't have put the plus network together. And I think that's the collective experience from the independence that we brought into the group, right? I think what, what we're challenged to do right now is to land on procurement-driven pitch lists and to land on very large um, marketer pitch lists. And we believe that together we have a very compelling story to tell against those large multi-market, multi-discipline briefs that is a fresh alternative to what the holding companies are offering. Hmm. But you know this. You were at it. You've been at big agencies in the past, and we've never seen a network. Uh, I mean, obviously, we can't talk about Plus Network because it's new. But other big independent agency networks. I mean, there are some that are massive, right? That 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 combined billings are as five, six hundred million. Uh, they are very rarely, if if ever, in contention for big global assignments. Uh, and I think part of that is down to the fact that. The brand is just not ever as strong well, as, the, as the individual component brands. Well, so it, and that's fine. We want to have very strong individual component brands, and we do. However, when large purchasers, whether they're on the procurement side, on the comp side, or from marketing, are evaluating, we want them to be able to see our ability as an entity to execute on their behalf. And I think we can do that because we have multiple disciplines. So we've got six disciplines in the group and mm -hmm. we've got multiple geographies as opposed to previous independent models, I believe, mm. have tended to be single discipline covering multi-geographies. This is an entirely different proposition. Mm. It is It is different. That's correct. I mean, there, there has been, a. I think, a, there was a similar uh, entity like this not that long ago. Richard Pinder was leading it. It included... Prime before they sold to Weber Shandwick. I'm not sure what the status is of, of, of that, but multidiscipline would make it different. Um, well, multidiscipline as well, and, and you mentioned on combined billings, right? Our combined billings are, are just over 300 million. Mm. And I think that's a very interesting size for 
an independent network or for an individual agency because I think that starts to get you in the midsize. And I think mm-hmm. if, if you just look at your ratings, mm-hmm. I think you've got um, agencies that are kind of 400 and above, 400 million and above single agencies. Yep. And you tend to have some movement in there. And then you tend to have not a lot of agencies, let's say from 300 to about 150. Yep. And then you've got a whole smattering 150 and below. I think there's a middle market emerging mm. in multidiscipline agencies and in single discipline agencies that can address the client's desire to recapture independent swagger, agility of client mm. team, willingness to take large risks in producing creative and bringing a commercial proposition to the table. And that's an area where I don't believe the large single agencies or the large holding groups are willing to take risks. Mm. I, I actually agree with that. I think the midsize is where we're seeing a lot of interesting things happening, whether that's midsize on a global level, so at that le- that 150 to 300, or midsize at a local level. I think midsize agencies on a on a national basis are doing really well. So, you know, there's there's numerous midsize agencies I can I can think of in the U.S. or the U.K. that are outperforming. Or in North America, you had mm-hmm. what used to be National had great movement. Yeah. In Canada last year, you had uh, Jim Weiss's group. Well, they would be what I'd – they're now a global midsize. They're like $130 million. That's right. But say a Finn Partners, for example, in, in the U.S. or an Allison and Partners. Um, yeah, or what, a, what Peter's doing has had great movement. Again, yeah. midsize primarily U.S., yeah. but he's he's acquired some things outside acquired of the U.S. Arena Mar. Yeah. These are, you know, these are midsize agencies that I think are doing – that are outperforming the market. So the middle, I don't think, is a is is a bad place, a bad place to be. So we'll watch that closely. We'll watch the emergence of the plus network closely, and of course, any more videos that you're planning. Well, I uh, I, I believe you're going to see a video a week over the next three weeks, and um, okay. I'm sure we're going to have some fun with those. Will you feature in any of these videos at any point? You, you know, I'm not until the rest of my uh, newly acquired hipster beard grows in. Okay. Right. Well, that's that's a treat for us all. So we'll await that eagerly. Um, so next up, let's talk a little bit um, about artificial intelligence. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, it's not a new topic in the industry. Uh, a lot of people have 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 uh, wondered whether we'll be replaced by robots. Um, what do you think the impact is going to be on brands? Look, I think if we're looking for evidence of artificial intelligence to become homicidal, we have to look no further than Amazon's Alexa, Mm -hmm. which I think is the beginning of homicide on brands. And what I mean there is I I think it's a beautiful model for disintermediating anything between the consumer and the provider of commodity that doesn't add value. So I think they've been a great force of disintermediation. I think what they've done, however, is they're placing a very large bet on consumers wanting to have a relationship with the commodity only and not have a relationship with the brand. Okay. And I think that's a probably wrong bet by Alexa and Amazon clearly playing to their need. They want to be able to distribute all these products at the lowest price and and scratch the commodity itch. Mm -hmm. However, I think they're underestimating consumer's desire for an emotional relationship that transcends the rational relationship they have with a product or a service. So g- give me an example, if, if you don't mind. I mean, how, how do you see Alexa killing brands? So if you're at home and you have Alexa and you say, Alexa, um, I need some 
can I get head and shoulders? Mm-hmm. And if Alexa has something in stock or can access something that is a lower price point that provides a larger margin to them as intermediary, Alexa serves that up. Oh, right. So look at this. There's a great podcast, and yeah. I'll flick it to you. I forget. Like I saw a guy do a video podcast on this that was very, very compelling about the algorithms that, that had gone into the creation of it. Okay. And, and I think it's, again – a real threat to brands, and I think it's a calculated business strategy by Amazon, which is smart for them, but I think you're going to see the human pushback on this because I think humans do desire to have the emotional relationship with the brand. So Alexa becomes a retail channel. Absolutely. Then don't brands like Head & Shoulders start to treat Alexa as they would a supermarket aisle and, uh, and pay for better placement? Well, okay, so we just saw Procter & Gamble have some pretty poor results in the first quarter, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say that's because they're under-investing in the brand and the brand relationship with the consumer. They're paying more attention to the distribution channel and the volume going through the distribution channel than they are the brand's relationship with the consumer. And I think that uh, one of your competitors wrote a great editorial on this last week that talked about the impact that that was having on brand advertising from Procter & Gamble. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I call it the Amazonation of of the brand. And I I think it's dangerous territory. Okay. It's interesting because P&G is not alone here, are they? I mean, you know, the, the narrative from P&G over the last few years has been firmly focused on cutting cost. Uh, and now we're seeing Unilever uh, moving in that direction, too. So when these two huge uh, FMCG companies um, are so focused on cutting costs, are focused on um, product volume of products going through the distribution channels, what does that say uh, about brand advertising, about brand marketing? Well, look, I would I would distinguish a little bit between Procter and Gamble and Unilever because okay. I, I think Unilever has a better long term lens. I think Paul Pullman um, is really focused on year on year growth and earnings and not quarter on quarter. So I think that gives brands within the Unilever stable a, a much more time and much more agility to manage those relationships with consumers and meet consumer expectations for a relationship with the brand. Mm-hmm. So I think they are less commoditized than Procter. So I'd start with that. But I do think that as commodity budgets are pinched and as profitability expectations go up, investment and marketing is naturally going to go down. Mm. And I think that's where you start to see traditional advertising become very vulnerable, Mm -hmm. which is why the holding companies are slashing, giving huge discounts from traditional advertising, uh, creative and media buying. I think that – that's actually going to push and create opportunities for other marketing services that are lower cost and more effective. You would hope. I I would I'm I'm betting on it as uh, as a key member of uh, of a midsize independent. Mm. You would hope. Um, I'm not sure we've seen that at P and G anyway, uh, and it's too early to say at Unilever. Well, look, P and G is an advertising culture, right? Mm. I mean, I, I give them large credit for coming on to PR early, mid-90s, mm-hmm. and looking at it as an ability to bring third-party validation to their marketing and product proposition. I think they were great innov- innovators in PR and FMCG. I think they've lost that. Mm-hmm. I really believe they've lost that. And I think they, as as their profits are challenged and their volume is challenged, you see the, down, the downstream impact on marketing budgets. Mm-hmm. So another challenge for the holding groups that 
I wanted to ask you about is, of course, the emergence of management consultancies or accounting consultancies in the marketing communications world. Um, so I wrote a, a, a pretty lengthy analysis on this last year, looking at all the different buys that management consultancies had made in terms of design, digital, uh, and in some cases, public relations firms. How big a threat do you feel they are uh, to a firm like yours? A firm like ours, not at all. Mm. Uh, because again, we play in the in the emerging middle tier of marketing services, right? Mm-hmm. So I, don't, I think for us, bring it. I think it's very fun to watch the fallout of that because I think it creates opportunities for us to acquire clients and to acquire colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. At the bigger end of the spectrum? At, at any end of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think... If, if you turn up the heat and you look at what is potentially emerging, and an analyst did a piece on this, I don't know, this week sometime, yeah. talking about predicting that in the next five or six years that one of the big management consultancies was going to acquire one of the big holding companies. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's kind of interesting, and we can discuss the merits of that. <laughs> I, I think that gets into the elements of machines versus humans. Mm. I think it also makes me scratch my head a little bit because if you think about how those management consultancies evolved, they came out of accounting firms, the big six accounting mm-hmm. firms. Yep. And the big six accounting firms saw their accounting business commoditized. And when they started to look for other ways to make money, they got onto technology consulting and systems consulting very early. And those are the parts of their business that have grown and created margins. So as they look to potentially acquire, as has been predicted, um, a holding company, which, by the way, is under massive margin pressure and under massive growth pressure, mm. it makes me question that proposition greatly. I agree. Yeah, I wouldn't see why they would do it for from a from a purely financial perspective. It make, makes no sense to me unless there is massive pressure on growth without a huge regard for margin. Perhaps, but these, you know, there's, they're not publicly owned these consulting firms. So that pressure for growth is, you would imagine, is less acute. Well, look, there's two things, right? Greed. Mm. Mine's bigger than yours. Right. And and there's also the ability or the potential to own the entire customer relationship with you, offer what is perceived to be downstream services to your existing client base. Which I think is is the bigger driver. I also think that one of the things that I, I had, I was told on more than one occasion when talking to people from from the consultancies uh, was that the the core consulting business is not in as good shape as it was, let's say, a decade ago. So there is a desire to find additional revenue streams. And these are adjacent industries downstream, perhaps, but they can be moved into more easily than let's say, a totally different business. It's not dissimilar, around just to mm-hmm. sidetrack for a second, to the law firms who mm-hmm. have been really struggling with growth, yeah. acquiring crisis and risk right. management capabilities. Yeah, yeah. Very similar. Well, in fact, they've both done it. So law firms have acquired crisis c- capabilities and Deloitte, I think it was Deloitte, acquired Register Larkin, which is a That's crisis right. management firm. That's right. But the challenge... Well, there's a number of challenges here, I think, for the management consultancies. Um, the the first one you would think is that, you know, the knock on management consultancies is always that they're great at um, telling you what to do and then not doing it uh, because they're gone, right? They will provide the strategy uh, and then it's left to other people to implement. And as you know, 
in the marketing communications world, there's no money in strategy. It's all in implementation. So that's a different business model, isn't it? <laughs> it, is, it is a slightly different business model. What I think is interesting for the big consulting firms is looking at smaller niche players mm. to have the capability in-house and in particular to be able to fill to fuel that creative capability with really high-end analytics. Mm. And as I look at it, saying if I was in the consulting business, that to me makes a little bit of sense. Not buying in volume, but buying niche mm -hmm. and being able to power that niche creative with cutting-edge analytics. That to me makes some sense. Yeah, and, and to be fair, that's mostly what they've done. I mean, most of these buyers have not been very big agencies. They've been small uh, and, and quite niche and, and, and agencies that are, that are good at doing what they do, whether that's digital, whether it's design, whether it's analytics. You know, even McKinsey, for example, has bought has bought a couple of firms. But the the second challenge, which is actually related to that, has to be the cultural one, right? I mean, I I, I went in to McKinsey last year, and uh, you know, it's they talked a lot about how they had hundreds of people now in in the business who would be more comfortable in Shoreditch than in uh, in in off the strand or wherever McKinsey is. Right. But you have to you have to think that creates a cultural clash between the, the the classic management consultancy culture of MBAs and people from, you know, the top universities wearing suits or whatever and uh people from the marketing world or even, you know, digital and design who who come with a with a with a, a different mindset. I think I look I th I think there's a a huge cultural clash potential. And I think it's not dissimilar to what you're seeing as a lot of PR agencies mm. are bringing creative talent in and bringing plan planning talent in. And you're starting to see a perceived class of colleague or employee emerge. Mm. And I can bet you at the management consultancy firms, the consultants are going to be viewed as the higher order mm. um, part of that organization versus the creatives and the marketers. Yeah. The executors. That's right. Um, is that still a thing in public relations firms? You, you still see that with, uh, with with different types of talent. It was something we definitely would hear about a lot. But I was hoping that by now that agencies have got better at integrated integrating non traditional talent. Well, look, I think that that the challenge is this: that on the early stages, and I still think we're on the early stages mm -hmm. of adding what I would call, whether it's creative talent or integrated talent that it takes a while for that talent to get financial traction. And as you're waiting for it to right. get financial traction, that puts greater pressure on the historical or legacy business of communications or public relations to deliver in a, in a greater sense to support the new colleagues. And I think the agencies that are challenged in trying to pay for this talent and to get it in quotes billable, or I'd prefer to say to get it client productive, I think that that uh, probably fuels a little bit of animosity within um, the big players in our industry. Right, and there's a there's a sectoral angle to this as well, isn't it? Because all of the, well, it seems like a lot of the the the, the non traditional talent, let's say, has been weighted towards the consumer end of the public relations spectrum. Uh, is that do you think that's a fair characterization? Uh, it's it, less apparent on the corporate. It's it. Look, it's, it's, a ve it's a very fair characterization, and that's just about, you know, fishing where the fish are, which mm. is there are larger budgets that sit within the CMO right. than yeah. budgets that sit within yeah. communications and PR. Absolutely. It makes plenty of sense, right? If you're going to go after larger budgets, you need to, to really sharpen up your consumer marketing capabilities, bring in the talent that can but, do that. But look, let, let me go back to 
where we are as a mid-sized independent and, and where the plus network is, which is we need to have, in my view, a sensibility around the integrated offer or the offer of specialists that understands the quality content and quality editorial Mm -hmm. and that understands the power and importance of third-party validation. And that has to, in my view, drive horizontally through all the disciplines as you execute. And that's the differentiating point. Mm. And I think when any agency loses its historical point of differentiation, which goes back to our roots as an industry, you're putting at risk that line of business. Mm. And how do you maintain that that historic differentiation, which is very agency and culture specific in a network of six or seven agencies? Well, we're, we're certainly hoping that by having a network of specialist agencies that share a common methodology that was developed by the communications component of it, yeah. or we, we're certainly hoping that that ties it together and make sure that the client is tied together by a common methodology. Okay. Well, you could just tell them what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let, I'll let, uh, I'll let Martin Sorrell do that. <laughs> Excellent. Alan, it's been a pleasure as always to have you on the echo chamber. Um, Hey, congratulations on your half marathon, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Terrific uh, time. Great to see. Thank you. Yeah, it was um, it was tougher than I expected. I think I was a little ambitious um, because, you know, when you're running for practice, it's a lot easier than in a race. Uh, But I was glad to do it. And actually, we had a couple of people from the industry, David Gallagher, Oh, ran it as well, uh, and Richard Fogg from CC Group. So, you know, it's good. It's good. Running is 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 great. I encourage everyone to do it. I'll stop sounding so self-righteous now. Thank you um, for coming on the show. Take care, man. We have in the studio in London today, David Tiltman, um, who's the head of content at Walk. Um, before I get to you, I've got to remember to plug stuff because I always get into trouble for not plugging um, our own events and and plugging everything our guests are doing. We will get to plugging walk shortly. Uh, yeah. But first up, I just want to mention anyone in London. Uh, we do have our Innovation Summit next week uh, on the 23rd at the Hamyard Hotel. Um, check it out. We've got a great program looking at everything from Brexit to fake news to PR nightmares to rising populism. We've got some really good speakers from HSBC, John Lewis, Unilever, and so forth. It's only half a day. And I think there's a few tickets still left if you hurry. So do come along. So David, tell us a little bit about the topic for today's show is the Walk 100, which is, I think, very simply described as the best 100 marketing campaigns in the world. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Walk 100, uh, well, if if people don't know Walk, we are um, a subscription knowledge platform. Our clients are typically uh, advertising or other communications agencies or clients. And we're best known for publishing uh, effectiveness case studies. We're all about effectiveness, what makes um, advertising and communications work, and how can we measure that? Uh, so the Walk 100 is something we launched a few years ago, and uh, as as you may know, there are now a, a whole load of competitions around the world that that examine um, the effectiveness of advertising. Whether that is a pure effectiveness awards, um, you know, obviously here in the UK we have things like the IPA effectiveness awards. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's 
F branches of the FE franchise all over the world. There's there's all sorts. And there's things uh, like marketing excellence awards, things like, again, over here, we'd have the Marketing Society Awards, but you'd, in the US, you'd have things like the Regis um, uh, and there's all, the whole host mm-hmm. of other things. So there's this huge now universe of effectiveness or effectiveness-ish awards, which uh, measure or, or, or kind of hand out awards based on the impact a campaign has. Um, we thought it'd be a, an interesting idea to kind of look across those and say, well, which are the best performing campaigns? If we look across the world, which campaigns are winning multiple awards, uh, which are winning in the best competitions, and create a kind of ranking uh, mm-hmm. of that. So that's what the Walk 100 is. It is a ranking of the uh, 100 best um, marketing campaigns in the world based on their performance in effectiveness competitions. Okay. And you very kindly sent me a um, 39-page report. My um, pleasure. My pleasure. Pos- possibly overestimating the amount of research that goes into an echo chamber episode. Um, so I haven't read the methodology. But the first thing I did want to ask is, how, how can you be, or how confident are you that all of these different shows are as rigorous about their effectiveness, effectiveness metrics as you presumably would like them to be? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, so within the methodology of the Walk 100, and um, we spent quite a lot of time working out how to, to to do this, but we apply a weighting to every competition that's that's in the uh, uh, that we cover, and there are more than eighty competitions um, that we cover, and uh, effectively we give we give uh, the each competition a rating between one and five, uh, and the main way that is worked out is through a survey we run of um, senior planners and strategists, the people within the the uh, industry who enter these awards. So really it's a reflection of what they tell us are the most rigorous, uh, uh, are, the, are the kind of most in-depth uh, awards. So we, we've set it up so that the results kind of reflect the industry's own perceptions of these awards. Um, mm. And, you know, we, we don't... We, we don't obviously make those weightings public, but, um, you know... Yeah, that's my next question. Yeah, <laughs> yes. It's not... It's kind of not hard to guess the kind of things that are, that yeah. are, that are seen as highly rigorous. Uh, and what, what, you know, we've been very um, happy to find is that there's a pretty consistent view across the industry. Mm. There, are, there are three or four uh, shows that are, are just considered head and shoulders above the rest in terms of rigor uh, mm-hmm. so they obviously get a much higher weighting than than, than some of the others mm, okay so let's get to the findings then the first one um the one that jumped out to me when actually when you launched it uh which i think was the headline finding was that i think that basically digital is over and it's it's all back to tv now is that correct? <laughs> I'm not sure I quite. I, I'm not sure I quite frame it that way. Uh, but what we do with the what we're under, so we've got these hundred campaigns, and we can start analysing them and say, well, what what's interesting about these hundred campaigns? How uh, how is this year's crop different from the previous year's crop? Um, and how do how do how does this year's hundred campaigns compare with all the other effectiveness campaigns that that we publish? And one of the the really interesting things we found is that if you just look at media usage, which media channels are actually in the mix, um, social is still the highest. You know, uh, social is way ahead of, of uh, TV, and we've seen growth in things like online video and uh, and obviously on you know just online display. 
there's all these so but there's a lot of noise around that because obviously that's just which channels are being used if you look at lead media which is where the focus of the campaign is where the focus of the spend is the really interesting thing is that our findings kind of go against the the industry narrative so Mm. over the last three or four years uh, we've seen the percentage of campaigns in the Walk 100. And remember, these are the ones creating breakthrough results for clients. They're really kind of big impact campaigns. The, sh- the percentage of Walk 100 campaigns leading with TV has actually gone up. It's gone mm. up consistently over the last three years. At the same time, social peaked uh, in last year's results and has come down quite sharply this year. Um there's a few things going on there. Uh, I mean, we know anecdotally that over the past year or so, uh, there's there has been a kind of reassessment of digital strategy by a lot mm. of big brands. So we've we've seen people like Procter and Gamble talk about yes yeah, because um, of, of ad fraud things things of that nature. Part, partly because of that, um, but there's also been a lot of research over the last three or four years that's really backed up the role of TV. Mm. So. Um, I mean, the, the classic one is uh, the, the book How Brands Grow by um, Professor Byron Sharp. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of brands have read that. So a lot of brands are now thinking, oh, my God, have we underplayed the role of reach and the role of, you know, just reaching light buyers continuously, the sort of thing that TV does exceptionally well. Um, and uh, and so there may be an element of this. that Actually, we're seeing... Um, some major brands think actually you know we've we've done a lot of experiments with with social the game has changed in social in a lot of cases so you you know uh the social platforms are selling themselves as uh broadcast rather than uh so as basically almost like an add-on to tv rather than as selling themselves as some crazy new form of uh communication that's never existed before um, and basically they've done that because the way you make money is by se- selling reach mm. to advertisers. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, yeah. So so that when we have seen a number of case studies that start to um, uh, have started to uh, cite these findings. So that we'll talk about, you know, we needed mass reach to reach light users to drive penetration uh you know there, there, there's 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 a few case studies that specifically talk about this mm. so there is a sense that um the role of tv is kind of being uh has been re-evaluated over the last two or three years at the same time as i say the game has changed in social um uh the the, the social platforms have monetized by changing the way marketing right. marketers use them um and and I think these things together have 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 kind of uh, have kind of seen um, you know in these kind of highly effective campaigns have seen uh, uh, TV be kind of yeah. become reappreciated. Where does social video sit? Does that sit in social? In the way you categorize it. Well, yeah, I mean, if it's if it's distributed through social, it would it be would, it would be yeah. it would be counted as a, uh, as, a, as 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 social media. But you know, I think this is where it's starting to get interesting yeah. now, in that um, you know, TV strategy is uh, aligning with a lot of these other online things. So you know, where does one stop and the uh, and another one begin? Mm. And I think. <clears throat> What's very interesting is what a lot of the tech platforms are doing now. The amount of money they're spending on entertainment or sports rights mm. because they're trying to set up a TV-like experience um, where 
uh, where brands feel safe spending brand building money. Mm-hmm. And that the, the what's happened over the last six months where uh, all of a sudden a lot of brands are, are, are questioning the, you know, where's my money going online? Uh, yeah, brand so safety. Uh, yeah, so the, whole, the whole brand safety yeah. uh, thing, the whole thing kicked off by Mark Pritchard of P&G in, in January. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the, the tech players obviously running to play catch up with with P and G's new kind of mandate for for digital advertising. But at the same time, they're spending a lot of money trying to recreate uh, a kind of TV experience right. uh, online because that is that that's your classic thing. You, you build a you build a property that a lot of people are going to want to go to, and then you mm-hmm. it's nice and safe. You can stick brand building ads around it. Um, there's not all the kind of yeah, well, there are fewer issues around brand viewability or, mm. uh, 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 you know, videos ending up next to terrorist uh, ISIS. Uh, yes, all that, yeah. that kind of thing. Mm. So um, there's a lot going on here. And I, I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't say that that this shows that digital is dead and TV is is the savior. Mm. Um, but we are seeing a lot of changes within digital that are affecting the way uh, brands are constructing online strategy and we're seeing a, a reevaluation of the role of reach mm. and the kind of things that tv has al- always done well there's a lot going there's so much we could i could we could get into here because i wonder what all of this means for you know platforms like facebook and so on that are putting so much effort into being a conduit for sharing videos and so and so forth but i haven't really got to that point where you've talked about of providing a tv like experience which is what i mm. imagine youtube is more focused on um, but it does raise questions about you know wh- where they eventually get to and and how brands are going to keep spending with them yeah i mean the, the, the facebook's fascinating and facebook is um it's obviously not short of cash mm. um and there's no sense that obviously no sense that that, that brands are pulling money out of facebook um but you look at the, the what, what the sort of things facebook are talking about and they they it, they're hugely invested in 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 video, but it, I I think what we're it it's less about sharing funny little videos of of you know mm-hmm. cats cats or mm-hmm. you know your 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 kids. It's not about monetizing user videos. It's about monetizing professional yeah, content. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, and obviously you know uh, the. the the shift to mobile is is a, is a huge part of that as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're seeing uh, growing opportunities to insert advertising messages around videos. It's, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole, there's more opportunities to capture attention and therefore mm-hmm. um, the competition for TV is extending because there's more sc- people's screen time is, is, is kind of increasing. But at the same time, it's worth making the counter argument. There's some great, uh, there's some great um, stats. I, th- I think it was from Thinkbox, uh, but I have seen them el- uh, from other areas that compares what people in the marketing industry think consumers are doing with what consumers are actually doing. And they, mm. you know, their point is, consumers think uh, uh, people in the marketing industry think that um, consumers spend thirty percent of their time on digital platforms when actually it's like. 10% or something. Mm. So that there's there's a big disparity between uh, okay. you know what what kind of um, middle class marketing professionals loaded up with tech 
uh, think consumers are doing uh, the, and what consumers. The echo chamber. Indeed. The, indeed. The, the, the TV um, finding, well, how does that how does that compare with, with the numbers? Because you guys track the numbers as well in terms of TV spend, don't you? I mean, it, has that... Because TV spend has held up okay, hasn't it, in terms of advertising? See, yeah, it's the TV spend. This is where we were at a really interesting point with TV spend in that it's held steady mm. uh, in, mm-hmm. in a number of markets in terms of percentage of, of, of investment. It, it's pretty steady. Um, and actually, di- what digital has been doing has been sucking the money out of every other medium. Um, I mean, really? print, print would uh, be the obvious yeah. one. Um, mm. So... Uh, we, we're doing a, a, a whole load of work around this. We've not published it all yet. But um, uh, and, and digital as a term is is a, a bit misleading because there's a lot of different types within that. But overall, you know, the the rise of online platforms has sucked money out of out of pretty much everything else. Um, out of homes held up reasonably well, but um, TVs held up remarkably well. But mm. That can only go on for so long, and there's only so long that digital can keep squeezing everything else, um, and which is why they've got their eye on the TV budgets, um, mm. and that's where it's going to get really interesting in the next few years as we see more uh, TV-like experiences um, uh, on different platforms. Um, How's direct mail doing? Uh, uh, Sorry, uh, I, well, I, I can't I can give you money off the top of my head, but my sense would be not amazingly well. Yeah. Um, but you know, we've seen this across the direct industry, haven't we? It's it's nobody really talks about direct mail anymore, no, ma- other than maybe yeah. mail, uh, Royal Mail. But mm. um, but uh, you know, they they they. It, there are a number of direct techniques of which sure. physical mail is, is one. Yeah, no, I, I asked because I remember when I came into this industry, I used to write the direct mail review mm. back for uh, for media in Hong Kong. And now I suspect such a thing probably doesn't exist. Um, mm. So yeah. anyway, I digress. Getting back to the Walk 100. So campaigns are increasingly TV-led. Um, another one of your key findings is you found a shift towards more consumer participation, um, which perhaps reflects the, the influence of um, of behavioral economics and, you know, getting people involved in campaigns as opposed yeah. to just uh, passively watching them. It's a really interesting one, this, because it wasn't, it wasn't something we were necessarily expecting, but it really came out strongly in the data. So mm. we, we, we kind of track uh, creative approach and we track the kind of metrics people are using. Um, and in, there's a big increase between, you know, what we found in the last couple of years with the Walk 100, with this year's Walk 100, and the number of campaigns that either have a kind of participation element built into the creative, the kind of creative strategy, or have um, or use uh, consumer participation as an actual success metric. So, you know, mm-hmm. how many consumers did got involved? Mm. Um, and you know some good examples. There's a there's a great campaign in um, Germany uh, uh, called Rabbit Race uh, for a, a retailer called Media Markt, mm-hmm. um, which kind of set up this this like Hannibal yeah uh, actual race physical race between rabbits and mm-hmm. uh, it was a like Easter Bunny promotion, um, and they were getting people to kind of you know. Um, guess the winner and, and all this kind of thing and, and, mm-hmm. and then they broadcast it live and oh it's a classic well it's <laughs> it, it is in a kind of way but it, it's becoming this this kind of thing where there's a real focal point where there's an 
real mm. world application and and everything pushes towards that application yeah. and that 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 kind of event or uh, I mean in some cases it might be a stunt but yeah. but th- this there's is a something PR there. technique well, well <laughs> it's it's really um it does seem to be crossing over into the kind of mm. uh, ad and ad and marketing world mm-hmm. um and and there are a number of reasons for that uh you, you know it's it's a way of um it's a way of pushing attention onto a particular thing it, you know very cluttered marketplaces lots of kind of ads going on it's it's a kind of way of gaining standout mm. um but you mentioned behavioral economics and there's there's a kind of there's there's a kind of uh neuro uh neuro background to this yeah. we uh uh, a, a company called Neuro Insight did some work on these campaigns and uh, on these Walk 100 campaigns for us. And one of their points was that it's a way, getting people involved in something is a way of driving uh, a quite an intense emotional experience. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, not necessarily emotion as in, oh, it makes me cry or, yeah, but, or but but it makes you feel of, something. Yeah, sense of ownership. Exactly, and um, uh, and that that can be quite powerful, and it can be quite long lasting. Mm. Um, and people are playing with these ideas more. That how do you create an emotional response? How do you, yeah, uh, beyond just a kind of thirty second ad? Yeah. Um, and from a kind of behavioral economics perspective, there's a there is um an argument that you know classically. Uh, advertising assumed that if you changed attitudes, then behavior would change on the back of it. Um, there is an argument from behavioral economics that if you can get people to do something differently initially, then their attitudes change on the back yeah, of the behavior change. Exactly. Um, and and this is this again, you know, is, is it feeds into this kind of trend. Yeah, it's it's so funny because this is such a classic kind of public relations technique to try and. Uh, you know, to, to drive user involvement. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned the real, real, the real world aspect because I'd, I'd been thinking about that a little bit recently. In fact, just today, because there seem to be a lot, of, a lot of advertisers catching heat at the moment for, for ill-judged ads. And it's almost as if the real world is intruding more and more on, on, on um, the, the sort of the, the perfectly manicured advertising world that exists on film or whatever i mean we've seen i think mcdonald's ad in recent days i think there's a there's a pretty bad skittles ad obviously um which was the company that solved race um pepsico yeah Uh, of course yeah pepsico uh, yes yeah yeah the pepsi ad yeah in-house obviously so (laughs) yes no no agency responsible for that. well we know we know where to easy easy target we know where to point the finger in that case um so the real world, do you feel like it's, do you feel like ad advertisers and ads are, are doing more than paying lip service to the real world these days? The best ones. Mm-hmm. I think the best ones. Uh, but it, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's about knowing what spaces you can play in as a, yeah, as a brand. Right, right. Um, and... Uh, you, you know, there's, there's been a lot of comparison between something like the PepsiCo ad with mm. the with the Heineken ad, and um, mm. which also was was somewhat criticised. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it got criticised, yeah. but I think you know there was a sense of well, if you're going to do it, then at least do it the way Heineken did it mm. rather than the way Pepsi did it. I mean, you know, the Pepsi one seemed to be saying that you know a 
Kendall Jenner. Ken- yes. Yeah. All it takes is a highly paid supermodel with a Pepsi uh, to to uh, to solve racial tension. In, uh, um, yeah. But uh, whereas the Heineken one at least found the said, well, you know, Heineken itself isn't going to kind of yeah uh, uh, solve these tensions, but beer is a conduit to having a chat with people. Right. So it can play in that space. It, it, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, there's always I, I mean, this this you know sort of bring us into areas of like like purpose and stuff. It, mm. It's a it's a pretty fraught area because mm. it's very easy for brands to look crass, and you know we know we know we have enough case studies that show that when it is done well, it can have good and lasting effects. Mm. But it is also very easy to balls it up, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's it's massive on on the public relations side of the fence. Purpose is is huge, um, as much because it has a direct impact. I think on employer brand, getting people to f- to feel like they are part of a, a company yeah. and advocates and so on. As on the external side, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's a there's a risk um, for brands assuming that uh, that they should be trying to save the world. I guess um, d- d- does that always translate into, for example, selling products, which is sometimes, you know, what, what mm. marketing is is being measured against. Well, it's just what it should be measured against. Right. Um, okay. uh, yeah. But the uh, well, sometimes it's measured against winning awards. But well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, well, the so like, a lot of this kind of purpose uh, agenda. Um, was kicked off by a guy called Jim Stengel, uh, ex when he uh, was at ex, PNG. Uh, after, after 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 he left PNG, he yeah. he produces um, uh, this this book in which he, he you know he made an argument that that oh. that um, brands with a purpose grow more quickly than than brands yeah. without purpose, and and so you, you can see how in a in a in a market where brands are clamoring for growth and where consumers are supposedly increasingly cynical. It would then make sense that right, we need to find a purpose. This is going to give us a platform for long term growth. And Unilever has kind of yeah, run with that. Absolutely, they've yeah. they've been kind of the standard bearers, I guess, in uh, among the big um, the big companies. Um, uh, PNG has done it around certain individual brands, uh, products, uh, yeah, products, right. but but um, but Unilever's probably done it more at a, a, or feels like it from an external perspective it's done more at a kind of corporate level now Stengel's book is not without its critics and some have argued that he, he, he you know that you could take issue with with his findings or um, mm. uh, and you know there's a uh, there's a guy called Richard Shotton at, at Zenith Optimedia. oh no no sorry he was at Zenith Optimedia. he's no longer he there uh, he's at Manning okay. Gottlieb uh, OMD uh, where he uh, and he did a, a couple of studies where he he kind of argued that Stengel had had got it wrong, um, but it, nevertheless it's been a hugely influential, um, a hugely influential. It has. Book. It's 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 everywhere now, right? We we yeah. had a session in Miami, I think, where it was a guy who wrote a book called "Good Is the New Cool," where it was, you know, and it, this idea. Mm. I, I mean, it's everywhere. I think. And there is some idea. there is some evidence. Um, so, like, if you look at Millward uh, Millward Brown. Uh, have got these kind of laws of laws of growth, which are a bit like the kind of Byron Sharp laws for mm. growth, but they they do add a couple of others, and the, the ones they they add uh, are about that a brand should be meaningfully different. 
that there should be some way consumers should think something about that brand that um uh that is that is both both differentiates itself from a from yeah. a, another brand but but in a in a meaningful way and um <laughs> is isn't that wasn't that always the case? Or? Well, yeah, yeah, but but I guess it's what how do you how do you put meaning into meaningfully? Right. Um, yeah. You know, is it washes whiter, or or is it that this brand not only washes whiter, but it also saves the planet mm. or rescues polar bears or whatever it is? Yeah, um, yeah. or destroys them? You know, or, or, or yeah, well, yeah, you know, doing too much washing, yeah, you know, <laughs> big big greenhouse. Anyway. Uh, I think the point. The point is that there's no there's there is evidence, uh, mm-hmm. but it's not conclusive evidence that that some kind of purpose can can be a um, a positive thing in terms of long term brand building. Mm-hmm. What is much less clear is you know does a does a TV ad with Kendall Jenner, um, right? Uh, you know. Turning up at a protest or a Heineken ad, a fake protest. It's not a real protest. Not a real, Let's be clear. Yeah. It was a suspiciously <laughs> Pepsi, uh, Pepsi branded uh, protest, <laughs> or a Heineken ad in which people resolve their differences over a bit. Yeah. Do any of these shift product in the short term? Um, mm. And and marketing always works over two timeframes. It works over the does it shift stuff now, and is it building that kind of long term. Brands that enables price premiums. It's all about mental availability that gets people to recognise you in the supermarket. That builds mm. your distinctive Consideration. assets. Yeah. Da, da 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 So so, you know, marketing is always a kind of trade off between those two kind of uh, time horizons. Mm. Um, and I, I I you know I I I think the jury is still out on whether yeah. the purpose stuff shifts stuff in the short term. But if you're approaching it as a long-term brand building play, then that, yeah. you can you can kind of you can kind of make a case for it. Yeah, and we should probably not criticize it too much because it's nice to have big companies yeah. um, behaving better, right? It's much I better mean, than people want to save the world and want to yeah, destroy it. Exactly. So, so you know, let's not let's it's, uh, it's nice. let's not kick them too much. No, the one thing I wanted to ask you about the the real world aspect of of today's advertising and and the way we're seeing um, brands trying to res- respond to some of these real world issues is it not a case to be made that great advertising should be a form of escapism yeah you can make you can make that case that great advertising could be all sorts of things mm. um i do I, I think there is um i i think there there was this classic chart this is going back 10 years but there's this classic chart uh, where someone had done some research into the percentage of people who agreed that um, the ads were better than the programs that mm-hmm. uh, that that they they were carried in, and as you might expect, that graph peaked in the eighties when advertising was great mm-hmm. and the programs were generally pretty terrible, mm-hmm. and uh, and has been tailing off ever since. So we're probably pretty low down uh, uh, now, but uh, I think. When we start talking about this, we we do end up in a kind of um, dang, slightly dangerous space. Uh, the advertising industry markets itself on creativity, and that its great competitive advantage is creativity. And you know, we've seen the march of consultants into advertising recently. But the, the thing that 
you know, the argument that is always made about the likes of Accenture or Deloitte is, you know, they'll never, they never create a Cadbury Gorilla or um, or a Thank You Mom for P and G. That you know, they never come out with these just uh, mind blowing, highly creative breakthrough pieces of work. Um, and there is uh, there is a there is a kind of uh, there is merit in that argument. Um, however, there is danger, in my opinion, my personal opinion, of see of limiting creativity to the creativity of a thirty second right. spot. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, there's a huge there's huge amounts of creative thinking mm-hmm. at the moment in terms of things like the application of data, and that's mm. another thing that's in our, in in the yeah. reports in the. Um, uh, and uh, creativity in terms of thinking about media, mm. uh, media choice. So I'd be very wary to kind of put, a, a, especially in the current climate, to put a single kind of um, definition around mm-hmm. what creativity slash advertising yeah. uh, should look like. Uh, there's lots of different things it can be. Um, and... Uh, and it's really, I, I think agencies are, are really kind of going to sell themselves short if they, if they, if if their uh, big selling point is we make great TV ads mm. or we only make escapism or we only yeah. do X, Y, and Z. Good point. I mean, and you know, you'd find lots of public relations people as well um, who who would make the claim that they are extremely creative in their storytelling mm. and, and the work they do but yes you as you mentioned you, you saw a lot of creativity in terms of i guess you describe as, as channel planning um or at least identifying um the best moments to deliver messages to people and that's driven by data in in some of these campaigns in the walk 100 yeah so there's there's two great um great examples of uh, you know what some people call moment marketing or mm. or um and one is from the economist the magazine the economist um which is this great campaign where it was inserting uh relevant messages into online news stories so you might be reading something like the new york times and you'd be yeah. reading a, a story on gun control or something and then a, a kind of provocative little statement appears at the top uh, yeah. about gun control yeah. uh, that then takes you through to a a, a kind of economist um, so it's news jacking is but it, they're using their content which i assume is yeah a powerful well, tool right obviously because, the economist yeah. has much better access to content than, than, than most, most, of of, most yeah. other brands um the other one that's really interesting is uh, uh, a campaign from a, an Australian swimming pool company, of, of, of all things. Um, this, this company mm. called Norellan Pools, and it, it works with this agency in Australia uh, on, a, on a kind of a highly targeted um, digital campaign. Uh, but I, I think what this shows is how this technology can be used really smartly and really creatively. Um, so what they did was uh, they they did a whole load of data analysis and they identified certain weather patterns that at, at which uh, during which interest in swimming pool purchases peaked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they did was they mm-hmm. they set up the, they identified the patterns. They then set up the buying strategy, the kind of um, algorithmic buying, and. Um, uh, made ads pop up uh, in in or across the internet when right. uh, when the the weather patterns were at the right place and they they it was highly effective they they created huge numbers of leads 
um, I think what's interesting about it is that, um, firstly, they were using uh, this kind of these kind of data techniques to not to cut costs. They did end up actually saving money, but the idea of it wasn't we need to drive efficiencies in in our reach or whatever. They were looking for ways to uh, advertise at the most relevant moments, mm-hmm. uh, and that that was a very effective approach for them. The other thing that I think is is really interesting uh, about it is um, there's a lot of talk at the moment about use of personalization, how data should be driving personalization. Actually, they weren't driving personalization at all. What they were using data for was driving relevance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is, um, again, mm-hmm. in this kind of the 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 the, the neuro um, uh, the neuro insight piece that that came in our analysis. There's uh, evidence that uh, higher relevance drives a kind of higher, um, you know, kind of, get, gets kind of the brain firing a bit more. Mm. Uh, and I think that was very interesting that there's just a tendency to try and use data to personalize, personalize, well, yeah, personalize. Th- th- then loss aversion comes in as well, right? Because then if you start thinking, well, if I don't make use of this offer now, yeah, yeah. while, you know, when the weather conditions are in my yeah. favor, then I'm going to miss out on something which is yeah. a really powerful. Um, neurological factor. It's funny that another campaign I heard of, um, which s- similar in that it was, I think, for a drinks company, which would send out special offers in Japan to people based on fluctuations in the weather. Mm. In in and it would tie it with location, geolocation, marketing. So people who are in a certain area, when the weather changed, they would get a, an offer from 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 the drinks company about vending machines in that area and it was created by ibm ix so there you go yeah the march of the consultants march of the consultants i mean yeah. that is ex- almost you know exactly the kind of campaign you would expect yeah a consultancy to come up with right blending yeah. data and 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 uh neuro neuroscience i guess to good effect um let's talk a little bit before we wrap uh about the number one campaign share the load uh, yeah. which has a, a yeah. special as an as an Indian man who's somewhat obsessed by laundry has a, <laughs> has a special place in my yes. heart but why why did this come number 1 well it's it's been uh so share the load for for those of you uh for for those of your listeners who aren't aware of it it's it's an Indian campaign as you say it's uh for um uh the Procter and Gamble brand Ariel and um it's 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 a it's an interesting campaign. There is a kind of purpose element uh, to it, uh, mm. I guess. I mean, it it was about um, you know encouraging men to do more laundry, and mm. you know, the, yeah, the, uh, there's a gender equality. There's a kind of yeah, yeah. and uh, that that kind of stuff um, has there's, a day, there's certainly a lot has been a lot of it in especially in Indian advertising. Yep. But when it's done well it is it is done very well. We've seen a few uh, a few examples of it being done really well. And uh you know they've obviously picked up on um uh, a particular tension in society in society. Uh, what the Indian men are too lazy to do laundry. <laughs> well I, 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 uh, it was a blinding insight. <laughs> Yeah, but it's maybe, but it's maybe it's not been exploited before. Yeah. In a, no, no, in well, a kind of, yeah, um, yeah, well done to them. And uh, and they did all sorts of, you know, there was it was a ad campaign, but then they did all sorts of interesting things like, um, uh, you, you know, things with the, the kind of washing labels on clothes, and right. uh, there's, yeah. there's lots of interesting activation of it. Very highly effective. It it, it did uh, it did 
it did the job it was supposed to do. It increased sales. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been highly awarded in a number of different award schemes around the world. Um, and so, you know, it, that that's the kind of thing that, it, uh, uh, you know, a highly effective campaign that gets awarded multiple times is the kind of thing that's going to do well in the in the Walt 100. Mm. So can coming up just a mm. month away, can you believe? Don't <laughs> yeah. remind me. I know, I had that feeling today. Um, I don't I don't know whether I can put you on the spot here and ask you about campaigns that you think are going to do well. Um, uh, leaving aside any refugee apps. Um, yeah, think, yeah. I uh, think, I, I really hope, I really hope that, um, you know, we, we don't see, we don't yeah. see anything like that this year. I, I, I hope a lot. There will be a scandal. Say, I mean, I think there yeah, are, there are people there looking for scandal as well. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't have any, I don't have any hot, hot tips uh, mm. i'm afraid uh, i'll leave that to uh, my my colleagues at the at the gun report um yeah uh but i do i i think you know last year uh, i th- i mean you know speaking personally I, I felt like the kind of ic app felt like a real kind of nadir it was like a kind of low point yeah you know? and, uh, i really hope that we 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 have a year where yeah there'll always be there'll always be the kind of strange uh, strange activation for a you know stationary a, shop yeah in Singapore exactly or a, yeah we've been you know, there yeah <laughs> we've lived through uh, it uh, but there'll always be there'll always be stuff like that but yeah. um, what you, you hope is that uh, the the you know the firstly that the juries are looking out for this stuff but but hopefully that that agencies are are a little bit more mindful this year of the kind of stuff they're entering and, yeah I mean I guess. The sad thing about that, I mean, apart from the fact it was it was a really cynical ploy to win an award, but just the fact that it got through so many layers of approval and, yeah. um, and peer review. Yeah, um, but it, you know, you go out to the Pepsi ad. You know, you do. There yeah, are there are right. times you wonder how how does this stuff? Oh yeah. How does this stuff hit the market? Going um, back, I mean, I'll never forget the um, the Toyota ad in China where they got the Chinese lions to bow to the the Japanese Toyota car. One of my favorites, a classic, <laughs> a classic of the genre. I feel. I, I, God, if they released that now, I'd probably be right. Well, when they released it then, there were riots. I mean, it was it was bad enough back then. But yeah, it is always amazing that these things get through. And then, of course, the blame begins. Um, so hopefully, yes, we'll avoid that. Uh, David, thank you so much. As always, this has been a lot of fun. We didn't get a chance to talk about our favorite subject, the state of the advertising trade media, um, mm. possibly because uh, we may have to censor mm. some of that con- conversation. Uh, but maybe next time we'll discuss time. that. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Irene. Thank you all for listening. Um, we are uh, going to be back again next week with a new podcast, as always. Um, you can catch us on Facebook, on Twitter. Rate and review us on iTunes. Um, a big thank you to Marketeers. And a big shout to March Communications. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.